Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. Big news breaking just this morning. It looks like there is a tentative deal to at least temporarily uh, prevent a rail strike or full rail lockout. So we've got uh, some details there, and we'll talk to you about everything that is going on there as well. Also, Senator Lindsey Graham throwing the Republican caucus into some disarray, some further disarray, by uh, going forward with a 15-week abortion ban at the federal level that conflicts with some of their messaging. So we've got mm-hmm. all the political dynamics and the uh, minor meltdown going on over there for you as well. Um, also, we have uh, some really actually very disturbing news regarding inflation, which is that the Fed may use these latest inflation numbers to justify a full percentage point hike. But the reason I'm chuckling is also because we have on the same day that, you know, the bad inflation numbers come out and the market tanks and whatever, Biden's out there like, things are great. This it is, is one of the most well. hilarious split screens you'll ever it, see. It, so, yeah, it didn't, yeah. didn't work out well for him there. Um, we also have some new midterm numbers, both in the Pennsylvania race, also uh, nationally. And we have to share with you this video that was shared by the uh, LA Unified School District, which is, I think, the largest school district in the country. One I'm of pretty the largest. Sure, certainly one New of the York largest. Anyway, yeah. um, they used this lady who was like a representative of uh, the company that makes Oreos and all yeah. kinds of other junk food crap yeah. to use like social justice language yes. to try to claim that oh, all food is equal and eating a <laughs> cookie is just as good as eating broccoli. It's 
so evil, honestly. There's no other word for it. It is straight up evil. Got those details for you. Um, Sagar is looking into the case of Columbia University fudging their statistics so that they can get a better ranking. I am looking into maybe the craziest story I have ever dug into, which is this massive welfare fraud scandal that involves Brett Favre getting millions of dollars from the state of Mississippi, again, from the welfare fund intended for poor people. Brett Favre is getting millions of dollars to build a volleyball stadium for his daughter. It's nuts, yeah. Um, we also have Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky here. Counterpoints launches tomorrow. They're going to give us a little bit of preview. Very excited about that. And with regards to that, we have a little discount for you. That's right. Okay, 10% off on the annual discount to celebrate that launch and to continue funding our expansion for all of you who have signed up already. Thank you all so, so much. We deeply appreciate it. As we said, look, we know the economy is tough. We're covering inflation here as well. So it means the world. Uh, Many other sources of revenue are, let's just say, unpredictable up and down as to whether YouTube decides how you're doing or not based completely upon a whim. The only people we can ever count on is you. And to that end, uh, as we've said, we're doing another show. Let's put this up there on the screen. Chicago, today is the very last day for pre-sale for premium members. So as we've promised, all premium members always get the pre-sale at least a couple of days in order to buy the best seats in Chicago. It's selling quite well, so if you want to go ahead and buy your tickets, if you're going to be in the area, as we said, this is going to be the flagship Midwest show. So if you are in the area, I highly recommend that you go ahead and buy tickets to this because the odds are we are probably not coming to any other cities in your vicinity. No offense to all of you. We absolutely would love to, but uh, as I've said, the economics on these things are difficult to figure out. So go ahead and buy your tickets. Otherwise, tickets will go on sale tomorrow to the general public, and we'll have a link in the description on all of our videos going forward. But that's enough administrative. Let's get to the show. Indeed. So as I said before, it looks like we at least have a tentative deal that may, for the short term, maybe not permanently, we'll see, avert a rail strike or a rail uh, lockout. Mm -hmm. So... We've been covering this for a while. Let's give you a little bit of the backstory, and then I'll tell you what we know about the deal. Go ahead and put this first part up on the screen. So negotiations have been ongoing for close to three years at this point. Railroad workers have been um, really screwed during the pandemic and post-pandemic because these railroad companies are making record-breaking profits, but they laid off a significant chunk of their workforce, and they're forcing their current workers to really shoulder the burden. Mm -hmm. What that has meant is that they've had these incredibly onerous schedules and they don't have things like the ability to just take a day to go to the doctor when they have routine medical appointments. They don't have sick time off. And unlike, you know, a lot of regular jobs, they don't get weekends. So when they're saying we don't get time off, they mean like literally no days off. Incredibly, incredibly onerous schedule. So uh, the railroad uh, labor relations is governed by specific law, so they couldn't just strike. There's a whole process they have to go through. One key part of that process happened a couple months ago. President Biden intervened with this presidential board. They put together a set of recommendations that was supposed to be a kind of metal ground, but it completely punted on that key issue of time off. So it had some decent wage provisions in it, but on those key sort of quality of life issues that workers were really stressed down over, it had nothing to say. So that deal basically sided with the bosses, the workers themselves overwhelmingly opposed to it. In fact, um, there's a, a number of different unions that uh, that represent these workers throughout the industry. So some of the union bosses had said, you know, we're okay with the, the mm-hmm. presidential board recommendations. When the members went to vote, they said, no, 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 we're not. So you had the bulk of workers still saying we are not satisfied with this deal. And it was really coming down to the wire. The deadline was uh, this Friday. So this was really imminent 
coming up this week where they either had to strike a deal or then the rail workers would be able to either go on a strike or the carriers could uh, lock them out of their jobs. And there were some signs the carriers were moving towards that. They already started to slow down certain things, long distance routes, et cetera. The last piece of this, before I get into some of the details of what the purported uh, deal is or a tentative deal here, is that there is a provision that also allows Congress to intervene to prevent a work stoppage by basically cramming down a contract on both the workers and on the uh, railroad companies. Now, the expectation was that if Congress intervenes, they would probably just pick up that recommendations from the presidential board, which again, basically sided with the bosses and did nothing regarding the workers' key demands and needs. Republicans uh, made a big push yesterday to try to get that proposal through um, and force you know, this bad deal upon workers who would then be bound by it legally. President Biden has been personally involved and his labor secretary, Marty Walsh, has been really leading conversations and talks between union leaders and between the railroad um, companies to try to strike some sort of a deal. And in fact, this morning, reporting is that there has been a breakthrough. Now, as I said, we know very little about what this tentative deal is. And there's a lot of reasons to be cautious about this and to avoid, you know, premature celebration. Because ultimately, even though this is a deal between the bosses and the union leadership, the rank and file workers are going to have a say. Yes. And they were over, like 80% overwhelmingly opposed to the previous recommendations. So this would have to be significantly better than what President Biden's board came up with before um, for them to agree to that. But at the very least, there's a 60-day, what they call cooling-off period, in which they sort of go through the deal, sell it to their members, and the members get to decide whether they're going to ratify this agreement or not. If they don't, then we're kind of back to the drawing board and facing down a similar deadline. Uh, let me tell you what Jeff Stein, uh, who has some reporting from behind the scenes about some of the details here. He says, people familiar tell me the deal does does give rail workers ability to take days off for medical care without being subject to punishment. That was a key demand of the unions. He also says that President Biden was personally animated by the need to get this done. Um, Further reporting says uh, workers will receive voluntary assigned days off and single additional paid day off. They previously did not receive sick days. Let that sink in. (laughs) And the agreement provides members with the ability to take unpaid days to go to their routine medical appointments for medical care without being subject to attendance policy. So that's what we know at this point. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the piss coverage of this pissed me off because it it seemed as if they were being, you know, unreasonable. And I think a lot of people are blackpilled because of the way the teachers unions acted during COVID. Listen, these put these things completely separate as like in crazy teachers unions uh, being COVID crazy is not the same as guys who were actually getting fired and disciplined for getting COVID. Right. They had COVID and they were like, I literally I'm either sick. got fired from my job or faced discipline. Same with getting the flu um, in other cases. I mean, these are not unreasonable expectations. Like, not at all. If you don't get a single day off, like how is your body supposed to recover? And then whenever you get pretty sick, especially you know if you have COVID and you need to be out for a couple of days, you actually face a penalty for reporting that when it's not like you want to get your other coworkers sick. Like regardless of whether you're going to die or not, it's just very unpleasant to be sick. The other point that I was uh, hearing was By the way, don't we all remember that crazy rail crash uh, that happened a couple of years ago in which the rail driver was accelerating too often and apparently was tired on the job and it killed a couple people? Like, Do you want somebody who is underslept, no day off, and sick behind the wheel of a passenger or, or even freight? I mean, I just looked it up. 
28% of freight in this country moves by rail. And a tremendous amount of that is not just cargo like retail goods. A lot of it is like iron ore, steel, gas. I mean, it's a key thing to keep our economy and all that. We're about to get into some of that. But yeah, the demands of these guys was really being overlooked, I think, in a lot of the media coverage. And I also the Republicans handled themselves disgracefully in this way because they were acting as if they were being unreasonable. Again, citing teachers' unions. I'm like, it's not not every, obviously not every union is the same, but look at the, my always thing is look at the specifics. I'm like, I think they were acting crazy in the teachers' unions in this case. I'm like, I look at this, guys are getting sick behind multi-ton freight. <laughs> I'm like, that this sounds crazy. Yeah, anybody. this is good for no one. I mean, the yeah. thing that I just kept coming back to yeah. is because before they struck this tentative deal, the uh, freight carriers were engaging in basically economic warfare, throwing their weight around, trying to, they really, their position was they wanted Congress to intervene mm-hmm. because they knew if Congress would intervene, and this is what Republicans were pushing yesterday, that they would end up with the deal from the presidential board, the those recommendations, which completely screwed workers. Again, did not address their key concerns at all. Um, and we covered it at the time. And by the way, I think it's really important to take a look around at which outlets were actually covering this. We're covering it accurately. We're covering it before, you know, the last mm-hmm. two seconds. Um, and that weren't just talking to, like, whatever is called the Rail Carriers Association or whatever that represents the bosses, but actually had the voices of the workers. I mean, we had Maximilian Alvarez on here this week. He was talking to some of the workers. He's obviously with the, the Real News. You have um, obvi- the labor outlets, labor notes in these times. Jacobin have been on top of this story. The mainstream press, they were asleep at the wheel. I mean, they didn't even notice that this was going on until literally two days ago. And then the coverage was so slanted. Um, they didn't mention in a lot of these pieces, they didn't mention at all what the workers' demands were. They didn't have the workers' voices in their pieces at all. And so the impression you come away with could very easily be like, oh my God, they're just like willing to risk the economy so carelessly when in fact they've been engaged in negotiations for years and their demands are so incredibly basic and reasonable. And then you look at these companies that are making record-breaking profits. BNSF owned by Warren Buffett. And you're willing to shut down the entire economy because you don't want to give your workers a freaking paid, like unpaid sick day. That's not, they're not even asking for paid sick, unpaid sick day. Days that they could go and go to doctor's appointments. Like you're willing to shut down the economy just to keep your workers nose to the grindstone and make sure they are completely just crushed under this onerous work burden. Again, as you are making record-breaking profits, completely grotesque behavior. There is a tweet thread that laid out some of this context that I think is important to remember even as we have this tentative deal. Go ahead and put this tweet thread up on the screen. This is uh, Jeff uh, Shirky, I'm going to go with. Yeah. As the possible rail strike lockout gains more national attention, some important context. Number one, bargaining started in January 2020. Workers have been waiting nearly three years for a new contract. Class one railroads have slashed their workforce by 29% in the past six years while making record profits. So again, they cut their workforce and they're sh- forcing the workers to shoulder all the burden. Presidential emergency board that we've been referring to was supposed to propose a fair settlement to avert a strike. It ignored key bargaining issues. Um, you have uh, of the unions that reached tentative agreements based on those recommendations. Two, once they put it to the membership, actually rejected those agreements. That's what I mentioned before. And the last thing he says here is the Railway Labor Act is designed to prevent strikes. So the fact it has gotten this far shows you how truly, truly pissed off the workers are. 
Um, the next piece, this is uh, now a little bit dated now that we have a tentative agreement, but uh, go ahead and put this Politico piece up. They talk about in this piece how the fact that a couple of the unions that looked like they had resolved their disputes, then the members were like, no, uh-uh, we reject this. That put more pressure ultimately here on the White House. Um, let's go ahead to the next piece. Again, this is what I was referring to with regards to the uh, Republican senators. They sought to advance legislation at 4 p.m. yesterday to avert looming rail strike by forcing enactment of presidential board recommendations if the unions and carriers can't meet Friday deadline. That was blocked by Democrats led by Bernie Sanders. Um, Jonah Furman has been essential. Guys, make sure you follow jo- Jonah for labor reporting. He says he feels like people are not appreciating. Warren Buffett and his friends are shutting down the supply chain to force Congress to mandate 125,000 railroad workers to go to work with no weekends or sick leave. Hmm. They're not just thinking about doing it. They've already started doing it. This is the lockout that I was referring to. Norfolk Southern has already announced planned embargoes on intermodal and automotive cargo, even though it's supposed to be a cooling off period. And the— Potential economic impacts were extraordinarily real. Jeff Stein saying emerging impacts, Amtrak cancels, long-distance trips, ammonia, fertilizer, ag products pulled from trains, price of ethanol, other product soars, grain shipments could stop tomorrow if rail shuts down our entire agricultural system, shuts down. White House has been in emergency meetings all week trying to, um, this is the next piece, trying to figure out any sort of workaround in case there was a lockout or a strike, working with other modes of transportation, including shippers, truckers, and air freight to see how they can step in and keep goods moving if rail workers go on strike at the end of this week. But, you know, this is a real uh, education, I think, for some folks about exactly what the concerns were, exactly how unreasonable the companies have ultimately been. Newsmax had a, a worker named David Manning on to uh, talk to him. I mean, they sort of started their framing as like, oh, my God, you can't shut down the economy. He educates them in the segment about exactly what their concerns are. And these Newsmax hosts are kind of shocked Big about box. how unfair yeah. the treatment is. Yeah. Let's take a listen to that. David, we did reach out to the Association of American Railroads, and they say that workers get sick days and paid time off. Uh, but what I want to talk to you about is what does this mean for Americans if you do go on strike? Well, what whoever told you we get six day, our sick days is manipulating the data. We get paid time off that we earned the previous year before. Before the new policy came about, we were allowed to take five days off and two weekend days off a month. Now we could take virtually one day unpaid off a month and then the only other time we could take off is our paid time that we had to earn the previous year. Yeah, that does seem ridiculous. They would never let airline pilots do that. Um, is that exactly. issue is that issue number one um, for members of the 100% unions? 100% is number one. And if we go on strike, yes, it could hurt the economy. It could be bad for society, but we don't want to do that. None yeah. of us want to do that. Well, and I know Amtrak's already suspended. We're some. not asking. We're not asking for the world here. We're asking for a few days off a month to spend with our family instead of living on a train. We spend 240 to 260 hours a month sitting on these trains or sitting at the hotel rooms wow. away from our families. Wow. When I leave my house to go to work, I'm gone for at least two to two and a half to three days. I didn't come realize home, that, David. I, I and then so, I come home and I'm only allowed to be home for 10 hours. Wow. And then I can be called to go right back to be gone and, for three days. You have a family? Yes. Kids? My kid is 17 years old. Wow. 
I mean, that one host actually makes a good point. They would never let airline pl- pilots. That was what I was saying fly. about freight. Yeah. I'm like, yo, you know, you this is kind of important. Listen, I mean, I mean, we all learn, you know, we had those two pilots. Well, maybe one. I don't know about the other one, but uh, for MH370, still a lot of questions about that one. I mean, the guy, you know, literally crashed a plane in the side of a mountain because he went crazy. So we should probably do everything in our power in order to make sure that never happens again. Yeah. And this is probably a key part of it. No, I, I think it's completely insane. And again, the Newsmax thing illustrates my point, which is that when you try and look at it in the aggregate, you're like, what are these guys doing? They're going to crash the economy. Is this like the railway strike of 1946? No, it's not comp- It's not the same in any way. The dude laid it out perfectly. He's like, listen, I'm gone for three days. I come home for 10 hours. I can't take time off whenever I get sick. And the time off that we accrue is based upon the previous year of work, which means if you start your job right now, and this belies, which is that this is very important to the entire economy, so you should pay people right. well. That's obviously, I mean, commiserate to your value. Yeah. You should get paid. And the problem right now is that the Union the uh, Union Pacific and the railway companies are making money hand over fist. In fact, I pulled the economic data before this. Crystal, they're spending billions of dollars buying back their own stock. Yes, they are. Dividends. Yep. Are paying of out massive are. dividends yep. for their shareholders. In fact, Union Pacific, for example, uh, with, a, with a dramatically lower workforce, is making 85% more profit than it did in the year 2000. So consider that. They're making 85% more profit with a lower workforce and paying out even more to their shareholders and to their dividends and buying back their own stock. So take even a couple percent of that and you can afford what this deal is. Just to show you how unreasonable they really are being. Completely, completely unreasonable. And, you know, most of the complaints here, like obviously everybody would like to get a raise. And I I think if memory serves correctly, they haven't gotten any sort of a raise in like years, which is ridiculous again, given the profits that um, these freight carriers have been raking in, especially during the pandemic and post-pandemic. But it also shows you that a lot of the key concerns sometimes aren't actually about wages. They're about, can I like live a life outside of my job? Mm-hmm. Can I just like handle the basics of being able to go to the doctor or go to my kid's soccer game or whatever it is, actually like see my family and have a family? That's really what this ultimately came down to. So again, um, we have some sort of a tentative deal. It's between the railroad bosses and the union leadership They have to take that now to the membership, to the rank-and-file workers, and see whether it is sufficient. We have very limited details about what exactly is in this deal. Um, You know, I mean, it is a uh, very—Jeff Stein was tweeting about the the difference between how President Biden has approached this sort of, like, seminal, defining labor moment versus how Ronald Reagan did with the air traffic controllers um, back in the 80s. I think that's correct, but it also remains to be seen— how good this deal actually is for workers or how much it falls on the side of the bosses. We just don't have that information yet to really make a judgment over how President Biden performed, who's going to ultimately benefit for this, and whether a strike has been uh, actually averted or just pushed off for another six yeah, days. Yeah, important context there. Look, I mean, the, the deal came out at 520 this morning. It's only been a couple of hours whenever we, you and I are filming this. We don't know. You know, we, we haven't even seen any worker reaction. Some people are still getting up. So we'll see what the overall uh, overall thing seems to be. And uh, yeah, I think we'll have coverage and if we can, we'll do something emergency depends uh, in order to react to whatever Yeah, happens. to the specifics yeah. of the deal. Okay, let's get to Senator Lindsey Graham here, who um, really surprised everybody by uh, pushing forward with a 15-week abortion ban at the federal level. Now, 
Uh, we'll get into some of the politics of this, but part of why this caught people by surprise is, first of all, Mitch McConnell and Senate leadership was not behind it at all. Second of all, a lot of the Republican messaging around abortion has been like, we just think it should be left to the states. Mm-hmm. And Democrats have been saying, these guys are going to try to ban abortion at the federal level. Like, no, 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 don't be ridiculous. We think this is going to be done at the state. So Lindsey Graham, though, is calculating that 15-week abortion ban is a lot more popular than some of the more extreme positions, even more extreme than that positions that they've been taking. So he decides to move forward with this bill. He announces this as a press conference. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand, except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. And that should be where America's at. So that's how he is presenting the bill. Um, He also has another moment there that Democrats were gleefully clipping out and sharing where Mm. he's basically like, if we get control of the House and the Senate, you can bet we're moving forward with legislation like this, which, again, Democrats see as very beneficial for them. Um, Washington Post has some reporting on the Republican response, which was kind of all over the board. Uh, Their headline is Republicans in muddle on abortion as ban proposed by Graham exposes rifts. They start off kind of, you know, laying out the context here. They say, in a memo to GOP campaigns released this week, the Republican National Committee laid out what it called a winning message on abortion, pressed Democrats on where they stand on the procedure later in pregnancy, so late-term abortions, seek, quote, common ground on exceptions to bans, and keep the focus on crime in the economy. So in other words, try to pivot off of this whole abortion thing and focus on crime in the economy because that's stronger ground for us. Then, Senator Lindsey Graham introduced legislation to ban abortions nationwide after 15 weeks of pregnancy, overshadowing new inflation numbers and undermining what many GOP strategists see as their best message for the fall. Leave it to the states. To give you a—you had one Republican strategist quoted as saying, it's an absolute disaster when he was informed that Blake Masters, Arizona Senate nominee, uh, had already signed on to it. His response was, oy vey. Um, McConnell declined to commit to bringing it to the floor. His top deputy, Senator John Thune, said he'd, quote, like to see the federal government get out of the abortion business. Now, there were Republicans who were quoted in this article, too, who were like, yeah, I don't think it's a problem. I think it's actually fine. But um, there's clearly a divide here in Senate leadership, definitely not on board, which is yeah. interesting. I mean, I don't know, Crystal. I still am confused as to why everybody thinks it's a terrible idea. I mean, 15 weeks is actually, well, I wouldn't say, like, overwhelmingly popular, but you know, the last poll I saw, 48 percent, at least the majority of people support a 15-week ban. It deals with all of the horrific exceptions. I mean, if you look, I think every country in Europe, save three, bans abortion or doesn't allow abortion after 15 weeks. I mean, it's quite a, I mean, reasonable position. I think my annoyance with it is that amongst the pro-lifers, they would never have called you pro-life if you supported a 15-week ban. Yes. They'd be like, what are you, some sort of European-style squish? And we're like, I guess, you know, in this one particular case, I do align with the Europeans. I mean, from my perspective, I don't understand why they're freaking out. Unless it means that what they really wanted was to do a much more restrictive ban Mm -hmm. and that this would force their hand to go past what they want. And as I understand it, a part of the reason why they're annoyed with him is because there's a lot of deep red states, which were, I mean, South Carolina, Texas, Alabama, uh, and others that wanted to go not even six. I mean, they wanted to like outright ban everything with no exception. So they're upset about it with him from that perspective. But 
Overall, I mean, frankly, 15 weeks would be, I mean, a pretty decent compromise, in my opinion. I so, mean, 15 weeks yeah. is still underwater nationally, so it's not like a popular position. It's more popular it's than like, like the— is, or, Sorry, the, it's not like three. If When you test the question of, of three months, which was Roe, like the Roe uh, policy, that's not overwhelmingly popular either, right? It's so like Roe, the Roe, the defense was we like the status quo, not in, not like we're supportive of the policy. It's like we don't really want to revisit this. Yes. Whereas, fifth, like when you ask people to choose, 15, 15 is like 15 a pretty, is, it's like a pretty good middle. 15 is, round. I mean, the polling has yeah. it still underwater, but closer to 50 50 than certainly the yeah. more extreme things that they've been pushing for at the state level. The reason why this is a problem, in my opinion, for them to politically, politically, and I don't want to overstate it because I don't think that this like is a significant yeah, change or whatever. But I think the reason that you have a lot of Republican strategists like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> is because when you look at the numbers in these states of who's registering to vote, the more directly voters feel like their vote is going to matter on abortion, the more women you have mm-hmm. registering, the more young people you have registering. And it's a really clear trend. So if you look in a state like New York, you haven't had this massive surge of women voters, this massive surge of young voters, because they feel like abortion is relatively safe Which in their is true. state. It is. Yeah. So, well, but then but when now you have this, like, yeah. then you're like, no, it's not. And yeah. so what Graham has done here is he's effectively put abortion on the ballot in every single state in the country. Mm-hmm. That's a problem for them. And then the other big picture issue is just like they don't want to talk about this. It's clearly we've seen Republicans are still in a position to do decently in the midterms, probably win the House. 50-50 on the Senate is my assessment at this point. They were in position before Roe was overturned to completely romp and dominate um, in the House. Historic margins definitely pick up the Senate. So this issue of abortion has been the key, it's not the only thing, but the key reason why their fortunes have fallen so dramatically. So the fact that Lindsey Graham, instead of like, you know, doing some of the stuff DeSantis is doing, like flying immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, and like mm-hmm. those sorts of things are very solid ground for Republicans. They feel like that's a place where they would like to stand. Crime, immigration, continuing to talk about the economy. The president just got some bad news on inflation. And instead, it's like, oh, so we're going to just talk more about abortion and have another political cycle um, about this and effectively put the issue on the ballot in every single state. So yeah. that's why I think there's a lot of like, this was a really, really terrible idea I think idea, when you put reaction. it that way, you take it. So I'm you know, too much of a nerd because I'm like looking at the specifics. But I mean, in general, like you just don't want to talk about abortion, period. And look, I mean, they're not wrong to. It's very unpopular. <laughs> what yeah. a lot of these people will want to yeah. do. And as you said, when people vote on abortion, we're going to talk about this in the Pennsylvania uh, block, but when, whenever you see people who are registering to vote and voting on abortion, overwhelmingly breaking for Democrats. So at that yeah. point, they don't care about 15 weeks or anything. They're pissed off about the re- repeal of Roe, period, and they're not looking at anything at Lindsey Graham. Well, and, and here's the other thing is, yeah. number one, midterms are about uh, energizing your base and turnout. Right. And this is an issue that is energizing the Democratic base like no other. There's just mm-hmm. no doubt about that. Um, so... I think that's really important. And then I do have to say on the their like whole like we want to be just like Europe thing. It's like, okay, well then why don't we give a give us like the, you know, uh, affordable child care, the public health care, the <laughs> single payer, like on this one thing they want to be like Europe, okay. Um, well, I just think, I think it's that's the idea that it's extreme to ban abortion after 15 weeks just seems nuts to me. I mean, it seems like perfectly reasonable like in all Well, but here's society. the other thing, Sagar, yeah. is like Again, they've been trying to lean into this whole messaging of, like, we don't want to do anything at the federal. We just want to leave right, it to the right. states, local localism, like, let them decide. 
everyone knows exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. Pro-lifers are not satisfied with 15 weeks. No. This is not their position. This is the starting point that they think they can get the public to swallow right now. And people aren't stupid. Mm-hmm. They know this is the opening bid and that in actuality, because people who are pro-life and like, you know, adamantly and like genuinely so— they see abortion as literal murder. They're not going to be cool with infanticide up to 15 weeks. That's the way they view it. Everybody, like, that's very, I think, obvious and apparent. So people feel like, oh, you are in the business of trying to ban Mm. abortion completely nationwide, and that's why I think this is a problem. There was an interesting moment. I mentioned Blake Masters before. Um, Let's go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen. So Masters actually came out immediately and was like, yeah, I signed on to this. Of course, he said, I would support Graham's bill. At the same time, his campaign spokesman had retweeted a message that, this is from the Washington Post, appeared to channel some GOP groans over Graham's announcement. The retweet was just, why, 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 why? He later (laughs) deleted that retweet. But um, clearly, you know, he and his candidate not exactly on the same page as to what the political impact here might be. Yeah, that one's pretty funny. Uh, I I agree. I mean, it's interesting to see the freak out. I mean, with Masters in general, he just doesn't want to talk about abortion at all. He put out that one ad and he's like, all right, let's move on. Let's never talk about it ever again. Deleted his whole previous section from his website. He had a problem. I mean, he's the guy who put on his website, federal personhood bill, like all this stuff, went hard in the paint, went Absolutely nobody asked him to do so, you know, whenever he wanted to. And then he had to reverse course because he's getting hammered with, you know, $20 million in ads on abortion. So on that, you know, I don't have a particular amount of sympathy because yeah. it's genuinely a self-inflicted wound. So, yeah, look, I think that your overall analysis is correct, which is that if you're talking about abortion, period, no matter what the specifics are, and you're Republican, you're probably just going to lose, given who your allies yeah. are on that. Well, and it's not just pro-choice people like me who yeah. see it that way. Charlie Kirk, <laughs> mm-hmm. who is very pro-life, um, also thinks just from a political perspective, that this was a very bad move on Lindsey Graham's part. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Why is Lindsey Graham, 25 days out from ballots going out, galloping in and saying, we need a federal abortion ban? Really, where have you been, Lindsey Graham? That feels like election interference. And I say this as someone who is so pro-life, I would love a total abortion ban. 15 weeks is not enough, but I'm also not dumb. 25 days out from ballots going out, the Democrats are applauding. Thank you, Lindsey Graham, for making this issue about abortion. (laughs) I mean, I think his political analysis there is pretty correct. Like, this is the last issue that Republicans really want to be talking about right now. And so... That's why there's, um, I mean, McConnell, however you feel about him, fairly savvy political operator. And mm-hmm. the fact that he's like, no, nah, we're not moving forward with this, I think tells you a lot. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. that's another interesting thing on McConnell itself, which is that how are you letting all this stuff happen in your caucus, man? I mean, you really mm-hmm. are losing control. Mm-hmm. This, Lindsay didn't consult anybody, just came out and did Freelancing. It, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder what his calculus on it. I think he probably sees it the way I'd, he's like, look, we just need to settle this. He's like, I'm sick of all these attacks. Lindsay. Lindsay's always been like kind of a quote squish, you know, to these people. So he's like, let's just force everybody's hand and let's unite the entire Republican Party. But I part of the issue is, as Kirk is saying, it's like, you know, listen to what Kirk actually wants, uh, right. which is that. So is there any real uniting these people? Well, same that thing. I, I mean, Blake Masters had said, yeah. I think he was one of the ones that said abortion is genocide. And right. so it's like, uh, we know you're not going to be satisfied right. with 15 weeks. Right. So that's. People see through where the initial stance is and where they would ultimately mm-hmm. want to go here. Um, I mean, it, it is kind of revealing, though, too, that you—he acknowledges, like, the American public is not with us on this issue, so we kind of need to hide the ball in right. advance of the election on what we actually want to do, which I think is revealing as well. I don't know what Graham's calculation was. I mean, look, 
you have people who have a genuine ideological commitment, and I understand that. And it could just be coming literally from that. I mean, Mike Pence said something like, this issue is more important than any sort of short-term political gain, basically acknowledging like, yeah, this might be bad for us in the fall, but I think that there's a higher priority here. So maybe it does come from that genuine place versus any sort of um, political calculus. But ultimately, yeah, I don't think it's don't think it's going to be helpful to their mm-hmm. chances. Yeah, I think you're correct. Okay, let's move on to inflation. This was an absolutely surreal moment. Uh, uh, President Biden on the South Lawn of the White House holds a multi-thousand people party. Every group who's ever existed in democratic politics is there. He's uniting everyone for the success of the Inflation Reduction Act. It's on Tuesday afternoon. At the very same moment that the president is talking about how the Inflation Reduction Act is going to reduce inflation, it comes out after the CPI came in hotter than was expected. And as the Dow is dropping over a thousand points. It really is one of the most surreal moments that you'll ever see. For those who are just listening, just keep in mind, while you're listening to this, there is a Dow ticker in the bottom right corner of the screen, which just continues to show market activity as Biden talks. Let's take a listen. This couldn't have happened without every single one of you. And that's in the literal sense in the Senate. Every single one was required because the other team didn't want to play. And all our distinguished guests, CEOs, act advocates, adv- activists, thank you for joining us. And what a great day. Exactly four weeks ago today, I signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. So it's just right, he, uh, classic Biden, he's got the aviators on. He seems to think that when he puts those aviators on, he becomes 35 years old again. <laughs> it's like, that's <laughs> not quite how it works. But so he puts the glasses on, the Dow is dropping 12, 1300 points there. Well, smart, and, smart programming there from Fox News too. I mean, they didn't miss the chance to I like- I think they actually had it up all day. To, to their credit, they actually did have that up and Biden just happened to at the same time, like, would you pull it off? No. I yeah, I mean, they're, they're, um, they're smart at what they're doing. And so no Biden also puts out this incredibly foolish statement at the exact same time, let's put this up there, from the White House in reaction. It says, today's data shows more progress in bringing global inflation down in the U.S. economy. Overall, prices have been essentially flat in our country these last two months. That is welcome news. Gas is down an average of $1.30 a gallon. It will take more time and resolve to bring inflation down, which is why we passed the Inflation Reduction Act to lower the cost of healthcare, prescription drug, and energy, my economic plan, blah, blah, blah. So again, he's trying to seize on the success of the Inflation Reduction Act. As we saw, look, the core inflation number did go up by 0.1%, and the reason why was specifically food and shelter. And when those two things are going up, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, by the way, has zero impact on food prices and on uh, on shelter costs, mm-hmm. right? So the two things, and I, I think another thing we should underscore is inflation went up despite the fact that gas prices went down by 10% in a month, yeah. which means those had to be so high in those commiserate categories that the overall number is still there. So the pressure remains on families. His point is not technically incorrect, right? Which is that year-over-year inflation went from 8.4 to 8.3. So year-over-year, it dropped by 0.1%. It's still up 8.3%. I just, it's I just, think, it's a I really tough one. I think it's one. so foolish yeah. when um, presidents try to sell a picture of the economy to the American Yeah, which American is just fake. Right. And I, I don't think it's, I don't think it lands. I don't think it's persuasive. I don't think it's smart for them politically. You know, he could have used this moment to to point to, look, 
Gas prices are coming down. That's great. It's not nearly enough. And we still have these other problems that my administration is planning to address through X, Y, and Z measures. We pass the Inflation Reduction Act. That's going to help in these key areas. But to try to, you know, say, but this shows we're making progress. It's like, nah, it doesn't really do that. <laughs> and clearly, you know, I mean, the markets were in free fall, largely because of what they expect now the Fed um, is going to do, which is to continue with a very aggressive uh, direction in terms of rate hikes, which now, and we'll get to this in a minute, they some analysts are saying they may not just do 75 basis points, they may do a full 100 basis mm-hmm. points. So that's why the market is in free fall. But yeah, this report was a bad report. We covered it as breaking news here because it was uh higher than what the expectation was. The expectation was like, okay, it's going to tick down a yep. little bit and we're going to be headed in generally the right direction. And instead it's like, no, actually it ticked up a little bit and we're still headed in the wrong direction. And to not have some of that reality seep in and have this just total celebratory, congratulatory tone in the remarks is off. What's annoying too is that Americans don't feel, Americans are still very concerned about inflation. However, remember what we covered a couple of days ago. Because the inflation is so highly tied with people's minds and gas, they still actually feel better about the economy than they did three months ago. Correct. So inflation can, quote, cool, because it is technically cooling, right? 8.4 to 8.3, not year-over-year jumps of like 7.5 to 8.5, but it can still be bad. Like, it's all just about trying to fit the vibe. The vibe is, is that people aren't feeling as bad as they were four months ago when gas, or three months ago when gas was $5 a gallon. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're like super happy about it. Yeah. They also don't feel like mission accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like trying to declare the mission accomplished moment (laughs) is just really foolish. And so to have the split screen like that, I do think there's a tremendous political viability uh, in the future. And so let's get to the Fed point. Let's put this up there, which is that the Fed is considering that 100 point basis point rate hike, the biggest hike since the 1980s, specifically in reaction both to this inflation report and to just from the overwhelming pressure that comes from Wall Street and from elsewhere. And the funny thing is, is that even Wall Street, and this is part of the reason why the S&P 500 and others, even though their overwhelming consensus is around that the Fed is going to do this, they are still uh, reacting in a negative manner every single time that the inflation report gets worse because they know that's only going to put even more pressure from the quote-unquote consensus on the Federal Reserve to increase the rate hike. And that only means that recession is just more and more and more and more likely. And I think that 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 is just the scariest (laughs) part of all of this is what we talk about here. I mean, look, are zero interest rates perfect for the economy? Probably not. I mean, it's probably not a good thing that all these fake uh, companies and all these other things. But to have such a precipitous rise so quickly— I don't think we can really describe what it's like to live in that environment. I mean, major Fortune 500 companies have to cut benefits and have to cut workers. Um, you know, yes, you know, they will always cut worker pay before they have to cut share price, but eventually, or uh, stockholder dividend. Eventually, that will happen too. And so, you're just going to see like an overall, like a trickle down recession without any of the, like the trickle up benefits supposedly yeah. on the way back up. And that's what they always promise. This quote unquote soft landing. I I just don't think that's remotely possible. When you're moving at this level of speed, these things take months to manifest in mortgage, housing, uh, and all of that. So I think we're going to see this for at least a year, a year, maybe, you know, 18 months plus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, what they point to here is a few things. So the odds of a 100 basis point, which just means a full point hike, jumped more than 20% after we got that uh, report uh, hopes of a Fed pivot, they said, were firmly dashed, as if they hadn't been already. 
Um, you've got uh, Nomura economists change their forecast for the Fed's September meeting from a 75 to 100 basis points, writing that a more aggressive, aggressive path of interest rate hikes will be needed to combat increasingly entrenched inflation. Frickin' Larry Summers is out here tweeting that if he was a Fed official, he would pick 100 basis points move to reinforce credibility. Reinforce credibility, whatever that means. Um, this is the same man who said that we need to get the unemployment rate to 10% in order to get this under control. Just so you know. I mean, Jerome Powell is out there directly saying we need to get wages down. We need to, there's going to be a little bit of pain. Like, they're not hiding it. And again, I think if anything, the fact that you have inflation numbers continuing to be bad shows you what they're doing so far. I mean, there may be a huge lag, but it's also not getting at some of the core reasons we have inflation to start with. I mean, the shelter cost is the perfect example. And I know we've gone over this a few times, but I just think it's really important to underscore. One of one of the big reasons that housing costs keep going up is because we haven't been building enough homes. Hiking interest rates makes it so that builders are less likely to build yeah. more homes. So not only are you not dealing with the problem, you're actually exacerbating the problem in that particular instance. Um, so I think it's a, a really, really bad situation. I think it's a very dangerous situation because you just don't know. These are blunt instruments, and you just don't know what kind of a massive effect they can have on the economy because there is a lag between when those rates are hiked and when the the pain actually hits. The last time that uh, rates were hiked at this level of 100 basis points in the 80s, it drove the U.S. into a deep recession. We reported on, I guess it was Tuesday, about that research from uh, an economist with the Federal Reserve Board of Governors who said, hey guys, we got to be careful with this because we could have a very similar circumstance to what happened coming out of the Spanish flu where, yeah, we had these supply chain shocks and all these issues and we have this uh, aggressive uh, aggressive interest rate hiking that could cause a severe recession. So there's a lot of reasons why the Fed should be very cautious here. And instead, instead it looks like they're moving in a more and a more aggressive posture. Absolutely. Uh, look, it can be bad. We'll underscore that uh, housing point, and we're going to continue to watch it. But it looks like the prediction of, quote, some pain looks very much yeah. like it's going to be an understatement. Indeed. Let's talk about the midterms. This is some really interesting new polling. And uh, from the beginning, let's say the Crystal and Sager caveat that all polls, especially the polls that we're seeing right now, look about as wrong as they were in 2020. So keep that at the very top of your mind. When we talk about the latest polling that's coming out from CVS, <laughs> let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. On a national level, I, I love these midterm vote, very important issues, specifically with Pennsylvania likely voters. Economy, 80%. Inflation, 77%. Essentially the same. Crime, yeah. 65%. That crime number is exactly why Dr. Oz is talking only about inflation and crime. That's one of the things he's been ha hitting uh, Fetterman over with. This one I found interesting. I'm curious what you think. Election issues. Yeah. So what's fun to me is that means something <laughs> to very different people. Yeah. You're talking to a Republican, you're talking about stop the steal. You're talking to a Democrat, you're talking about also stop the steal, but you want to like throw people in jail who are pro stop the steal. So that one, I don't think it's really salient beyond like a base motivator. But then guns and abortion are also very high up there as well. Now, this is an important thing. Oz is leading in that poll of likely voters of 57 to 43 with Fetterman on the economy. And again, this is why I kept saying 
Whenever he attacks Fetterman um, on any ground that isn't Joe Biden and the economy, I just, I think it's foolish. I mean, I think this is the absolute centerpiece of their campaign. The issue, though, for, uh, for the issue, though, for Dr. Oz is, let's put this up, next one up there on the screen. In terms of who Pennsylvanians say they believe when they talk about politics, really believe Fetterman, 57%. Oz, 29%. Think voters want to hear. 43% Fetterman, 71% Oz. So the attack on Oz here is he's a phony. They don't believe that he means what he says whenever he's talking. And there's a couple of other things uh, that they point to. And this one, obviously, I think is going to matter a lot. Has Oz been in Pennsylvania long enough to understand the issues? 33% yes, 67% no. Does Oz have the right, or do they have the right experience? John Fetterman, 56% uh, yes, 24% for Oz. How do they handle themselves personally? Fetterman is at 50-50. Oz is at 36-64, 64% dislike. And then, quote, main reason for vote choice. By the yeah, way, I this love this. This is my favorite. for Because for all of the talk of issues, do I like the guy or not? Here is with Fetterman. 56% of his voters say, I like him, and that's why they're voting for him. For Oz voters, it's only 15. For the, oppose the other candidate, 24% for Fetterman, 54% Oz, and then he's my party's nominee, 20% Fetterman, 31%. So for Oz. Fetterman voters, it's overwhelming, like an affirmative yes. vote. Like, I, I like, like this John. guy, yeah. I'm with him. Right. For Oz voters, it's like, I don't like Fetterman. Yeah. So it and like I <laughs> Or I don't like Biden. I don't like Democrats. Yeah. So I mean this says to oppose the other yeah. candidate, but yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. It is more about like an, an opposition vote mm-hmm. rather than an affirmative vote in favor of him. And this was also interesting. Even though Fetterman is a current elected and Oz is the quote unquote outsider having never been in elected office before, it's actually Fetterman who was seen by more voters as representing change. Mm. Um I thought that was fascinating as well. You've got fifty-eight percent saying that John Fetterman represents change and 42% saying that uh, Dr. Oz does, which again is kind of remarkable given not just that Fetterman's in elected office, but also that, you know, Democrats are the party in power. So you would think that people would be like, oh, the Republican would be the one representing change. I think it shows that the Fetterman attacks on Oz have been very effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have defined him. These numbers reflect exactly the way that they wanted him defined. And so the overall lead here for Fetterman is 52-47 outside of the margin of error, but still relatively close race. I would say this is more in line with the numbers you would expect to see in Pennsylvania. Pretty close race, but with Fetterman having a little bit of an edge given that he's run a much, much more effective campaign. They also asked um, this question, is Fetterman healthy enough to serve? And you had pretty, I mean, Fetterman's got to be happy with these numbers as well. You had 59% who said yes and 41% who said no. So clearly the vulnerability for Fetterman here is exactly what we've been saying. It's number one on the economy. The more that inflation is in the news, the more that Oz is talking about inflation and not in the context of crudite either. Mm-hmm. Um, the more effective. And then the second beat is crime, which they've been pushing more and more. Those are the places where Fetterman is uh, the most vulnerable. And the, that's, I think, a microcosm of the entire that's national, the national, national scene. wins. Exactly. Putting yeah. the specifics of these candidates and their campaigns aside. Bingo. I mean, I, you know, if, if I was doing Oz, I'd be doing the same thing. Philadelphia is a disaster right now. I'd be playing uh, that all day long. Because the other thing is you maybe want to suppress vote in terms of the mainline mm-hmm. suburban Philly people who all came out hard to vote for Joe Biden. If you can keep 
keep him at home or if you can maybe convince him to vote for Oz, not to vote for Fetterman, that's going to be a big win for you. Try and drive out as much of the Republicans as possible. Overall, same thing. I mean, the advice for Oz is the same for advice for every Republican candidate that is out there. It's just so annoying every time I see them get embroiled. It's like basic stuff. Just focus on the basics. John Fetterman is a vote for Joe Biden. John uh, Joe Biden is the reason we have high inflation. Whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. Uh, what it comes down to is politics. And I think a lot of these guys, Blake Masters and Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker, they just seem to lack a very basic political sensibility yeah. of being sticking to the message and just hammering it home every single day. Twitter is a distraction in every way. Yeah. Even with Fetterman, all of his uh, uh, all of his trolls against Oz on Twitter is funny for people like us. What matters more are the billboards and the ads. Well, about how he's from New Jersey. Clear, yeah, clearly, yeah. I mean, it's landing in the state. Right, right, right. So I'm yeah. saying he takes that Twitter energy and, and then he actualizes it in, it in his real yeah. campaign. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's like, that's the key. I think the other thing, going back yeah. to the conversation about Lindsey Graham and abortion and all of that, they asked, um, of those who say abortion is very important yes. to their vote, who are they voting for? 70% for Fetterman. Yes. And 30% for us. Right. So again, really clear numbers that the more that Roe versus Wade and abortion is in the news, like the better it is for Democrats. And they're clearly leaning into that messaging very heavily. They also had numbers on whether people are voting on national issues or local issues. 76% say they're voting on national issues every election. You know, they, the saying used to be all elections are local. No, all politics is now national. Um, and uh, so I, I think this shows you that there are opportunities for us here in terms of the economy, um, to continue to prosecute the case, to get out from the little bit of a deficit that he appears to be in. Although, again, I think you should take all of these polls with a grain of salt. But um, you can see why Fetterman has taken the approach that he has. And if I were to point to one of these numbers that I think is the most damaging for Oz, it's the first one you brought up about how People are like, I don't trust the. Yeah, this they're guy like, I feel say. like I he's telling you what slimy. I just want to hear. Yeah, yeah, that's a huge problem for a politician. That's a death knell sometimes. Yeah, all right. Absolutely. Let's put the next one up there. This is about what happened in New Hampshire. Interesting last night. So actually, uh, remember this woman? Uh, she, Caroline Leavitt used to work at the White House whenever I was covering there. I remember her uh, whenever she was just a junior press assistant. She's only 25 years old. She won the uh, she won her primary last night for the House of Representatives in the 1st Congressional District. I'm not entirely sure how uh, competitive that seat actually it's, is. It's very competitive. Right. So this one, um, the uh, Larry Sabato's crystal ball, they had it as a toss-up. Ah, okay. After she got the nomination, they've Dean? moved it to Lean Dean. Lean Dean, yeah. Because she was the more extreme of the candidates in the primary. She's very MAGA. I mean, look, this is a super, she's ran as MAGA. She got all the quote-unquote MAGA world endorsements. And her and the other winner in the Senate race really exemplify the quote-unquote MAGA sweep in the party. The reason I actually think that's important is that Trump didn't endorse in these races. Yeah. So these were not races where Trump was pushed over the edge. This was a real test for the primary voters themselves. Trump aside, who are we picking? In both cases, the quote-unquote MAGA person with the imprimatur of Trump, both on the Senate side and in the congressional district, both of them won their competitive primary. Yeah, it's like they didn't even need the Trump endorsement. They just needed the MAGA aesthetic. Yeah, and which they had. Well, it's interesting, though, because in other primaries, there have been MAGA folks who have endorsed despite Trump's endorsement. In general, Trump's endorsement won. But I, the, always the question was, is like, what matters the most? And it looks like in the absence of a Trump endorsement, as appearing more MAGA or not, mattered a lot in New Hampshire. Now, why does New Hampshire matter? 
presidential primary state. Trump, people forget, Trump won the New Hampshire primary by a blowout win. Remember, he lost the Iowa caucuses. I think he got third place. That was his first win on the scene. And New Hampshire, very much those like white working class type voters, uh, not same as uh, some of the evangelicals and Catholics in Iowa. More, I would say, more of a like a emblem for the people who ultimately swung the 2016 election. So for that fact to be, you know, kind of the raucous GOP base for them to go very much with the MAGA uh, candidates, that does matter. And it seems, again, seems to have affected electoral chances in terms of how the prognosticators are calling it. Would, would take that with whatever grain of yeah. salt that you will. Well, Who the hell knows what's going to happen? Sure, sure, absolutely. I yeah. mean, there's another piece that's interesting here about the uh, Senate race in particular, which is that this dude who, I don't know how you say his name, General Don Balduck? Oh, yeah, Balduck. Yeah, Balduck. Balduck. Yeah. Um, he actually did not put a single ad of his own up on the airwaves. Mm-hmm. Um, did not spend a penny in <laughs> advertising himself on the airwaves, which is kind of incredible. But Democrats saw him as the weaker candidate. And so uh, the Senate Majority Pack, Chuck Schumer's group, aired ads across the state calling his opponent, State Senate President Chuck Morse, the choice of Mitch McConnell's Washington establishment. They called him another sleazy politician, and they tied him to the lobbying industry and opioids. The opioid epidemic, of course, been uh, devastating in New Hampshire. So Democrats decided that, I mean, they're, again, playing with fire here. They decided this was the candidate they wanted to go up against, and they were successful in putting him over the top. Now, you know, I think Republican voters have— have agency. And of course I think they do. Obviously, right. like these are the type of candidates that they're selecting. So I'm not sure that the Democratic money ultimately was determinative here. But the big thing that uh, Republicans in this state are concerned about is that now with this dude as the nominee, Mitch McConnell and the others who could put money into the state are going to say, nah, this is not a good use of resources. And so that's the real thing. Obviously, we've been covering how limited uh, funds are for a lot of Republican Senate candidates right now. They're having to beg Mitch McConnell or Peter Thiel or Donald Trump or whoever who has money in their packs to come in and sort of rescue their butts in these various races. So with money being tight, very likely that McConnell and co. take a look now at this race, which already had been trending more towards the Democrats and the the incumbent Maggie Hassan and say, this is not a good investment for us. We're instead going to put more money into Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, Ohio, or somewhere else where we think we really have a shot to win. I'm still, look, you're playing with fire. What if these people win? What if this is a new Marjorie Taylor Greene or Madison Cawthorn or, uh, you know, or, you know, look, you never know. Some, some crazy shit could happen. Absolutely. And somebody could win. And now you have this guy in the Senate. So you will uh, pay the price possibly for that. Might reap what they sow. Okay, let's move on. This is a hilarious thing that Crystal and I were both kind of obsessed with yesterday. Correct. Uh, let's, so let me share, put the context. There is fat acceptance. TikTok is something I've become unfortunately very familiar with. It's a major social trend amongst the quote unquote teens. Now, I will say if that's an organic movement, I think that's fine. I think it's abhorrent and terrible and unhealthy. But, you know, as long as it's organic, so be it. It's just another sociological thing that we all have to work out. There is, however, been a recent trend of elite institutions trying to share this ideology. Now, this has now happened where the Los Angeles School Unified District shared a, quote, food neutrality video 
on its Instagram. Now, why does that matter? As you said previously in the beginning of the show, Los Angeles is one of the largest school districts in the United States. You know, hundreds of thousands of children being educated, uh, educated here. Nutritional guidelines in schools is a huge impact on overall child nutrition. Something I'm personally watching very closely, the Biden administration actually holding the very first White House conference on nutrition in like six years, uh, happening at the White House in two weeks. Now, the reason that that matters is there's been a lot of debate about nutritional guidelines by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Obviously, I think those guidelines are insane and ridiculous. And the question is, are they going to revise them or are they going to bow to some of this ideology? Are they going to move in a health direction or are they going to make it ideological? So this possibly could be a harbinger of things to come. Let me just say that some of the guidelines also for years and years have been impacted by the food industry. Yes, by the sugar and drug industry. The sugar and food industry, which culminates in this video and a perfect example of what I fear the most, which is what we see here in this video is a quote-unquote food neutrality uh, talk by these TikTokers that include a nutritionist. Now, the nutritionist in this video, we're going to play the full video for you, effectively says that caring about what you eat is bad and that there's no such thing as good food and bad food. What the video neglects to say is that the nutritionist who goes by literal black nutritionist talks about quote-unquote systems of oppression and all of this is a senior nutrition scientist at Mondelez International spun off from Kraft Foods and makes the foods like Chips Ahoy, uh, Oreo cookies, Sour Patch Kids, basically all sugary junk food Delicious and snacks. Things, but not so good for you. With that knowledge, in, in, with that knowledge, now watch this video and see how much of an op that it is. I got us donuts. Those are so bad for you. Oh no, are they moldy? I mean, no. are they poisoned? Are you allergic? No, I'm just saying. Mm. You're judging my food choices based on a false standard of health again, aren't you? Guilty. Diet culture, fat phobia, and systems of oppression have created false hierarchies of food and it shows up everywhere. For instance, harmful thought patterns like earning food through exercising or that dessert is the reward for the punishment of eating vegetables. Remember that you do not need to earn food. We are all incorrectly taught from a young age that our size and therefore the foods that we eat are markers of our self-worth. Moralizing food can lead to harmful relationships with food and disordered eating. Instead of focusing on good and bad choices, try to approach food with neutrality in mind. The only foods that are bad for you are foods that contain allergens, poisons, and contaminants, or food that is spoiled or is otherwise inedible. Eat without guilt, regardless of what society says. Eat uh, without guilt, without regardless of what society says. This is literally a corporate op it's, it's, in order to normalize like eating junk food. Like, by the way, social justice language yeah. to yeah run a corporate op to be like eat our Oreos. Well, the crazy more Oreos. The crazy thing, Crystal. Throw this next one up there on the screen, which is that part of her job description is quote innovation opportunities and driving the scientific evidence strategy to promote brands and support the business, as in. To use her, quote, black nutritionist label to try and normalize amongst this growing movement the idea that there's no such thing the, as good and bad food. And here, here's the thing. Yeah. Okay. So I think that people should feel good about themselves. I don't think that if you are overweight or struggling in this department that you're a bad person. I think that 
that part of like fat acceptance body mm-hmm. so i think that's such a positive thing and also the fact that the like body standards now are different from even when i was in high school like just being like skinny is not the only thing that is now seen as desirable i think that is a wonderful beautiful thing i think it is flat out evil to do what this lady is doing and lie to people about what is good for them and what's yeah. not and this is like actually really old strategy um this is in tobacco. terms of So, and this is part of, this is actually part of why the federal health guidelines are bad because they bought into this notion that was pushed by, Mm -hmm. you know, the sugar and the soft drink industries, et cetera, that, oh, it's just calories in, calories out. It doesn't matter where the calories come from or what they are. It's all neutral. And so you don't have to worry about if it's sugar versus if it's like, you know, a vegetable or something else that's going to be healthier for you. All you have to worry about is overall calories. So an Oreo can be just as good a part of your diet as something else ultimately is. So they're taking this very old strategy that they've employed with a lot of money backing it and a lot of fake research for years and decades, and they're now putting this like woke social justice label on it to try to make it sell in new era, and it is grotesque to yeah. see. Yeah, you know, it's really bad. And look, I mean, on the ca- I mean, I've been obviously people probably talk about it too much. My own health uh, journey for calories in, calories out. Look, it can work for weight loss. You know, if you want to be able to incorporate an Oreo because you're going to literally lose your mind from eating a quote unquote whole diet. As long as you track every single thing, it's fine. Like, it's not going to kill you. That being said, don't delude yourself that it has the same micronutrient profile as something else that you're going to eat. Look, if people so focusing want, on that is actually probably people the most should eat thing. however the hell they want to eat. Like, I am not, I eat whatever the hell I want to eat. Like, I just think that people should have accurate information mm-hmm. and be able to make good health choices so that they're empowered. And I also think we need to make it, obviously, my, like, broader societal critique is we need to make it a lot easier and more affordable to make those good choices. But you're right that the the school nutrition it's a big thing, and it's funny because a yeah, there was amount of kids get their uh, what like their like main meal from so that's why the school lunch program is one of the most important programs in so, the entire country. Absolutely, yeah. and I think they just went back during the pandemic. They made it free for yes, everybody across yeah, the country, which so I really right. really supported. And now they've rolled that back. But yeah, like um, my kids, if they get the school breakfast, for example, oftentimes it's like a honey bun. Or some, or like God. some, or like a pop. T- I mean, it's just like the worst crap you could possibly feed a child in the morning, and sets you up for. This is why calories, cal- calories in, calories out is such a sort of like basic and wrong premise. Because what does that set you up? You get a sugar spike, then you're going to crash. You're going to feel like shit for the whole day, and mm-hmm. you're not going to be set up to like have a good day of learning with that type of quote unquote fuel at the beginning of the day. So anyway, this is. I'll split the difference. It needs to be called out. I'll say calories and calories out is an important principle for weight loss because I see a lot of people out there eating lots of steaks, being like, I'm just going to lose weight because I'm going on a carnivore. It's like, dude, well, if you're eating 3,000 calories of fat, like you're still going to get fat. Now, for health, it is not the same thing at all. So you got to put those two things apart. I think that that. Again, this is it's nuanced. It's difficult. Also, your genetics play a massive role into Huge it. Huge. You know, role. I got my blood Huge tested. Role. I have, uh, you know, like big uh, problems, uh, pre-diabetic. All my grandparents are diabetic. Like I have Indians and South Asians in general are much more predisposed to that. The stuff that spikes my blood sugar not going to be the same thing as spikes your blood sugar. Uh, so a lot of this is genetic. A lot of it is individual differences. A lot of it depends on my te- But you know, a lot of the stuff. What drives me crazy too is about uh, food and more. It's like it's all 
based around a goal of you want to feel good and then you want to live a long time. Yeah. And when you think about it that way, and you take out immediate weight loss and immediate all stuff and put it on a 30, 40 year time horizon, obviously eating a donut all the time is bad. <laughs> it's like, this is where it's ludicrous. Now, as you said, look, you know, people shouldn't feel pressure or feel quote unquote bad about themselves. But yeah, I mean, like, maybe you got some work to do. Or maybe if you don't care, that's fine. It's a free country. Yeah, if, you if can your do choice what you want. is like, I want to indulge in these foods and right. I don't really give a shit. But then you should fine. know, that's like, fine. you're probably going to live as long. You're probably, you know, not going to be able to pick up your grandkids whenever you're old. Like, these are all things I really want to do, so I'm going to care about. You have to give people accurate info as to what they want and what they're actually choosing to do and not cover up reality. It's like yes. that is when we start to get into dangerous Accurate territory. Accurate info without judgment or shame right. is, shouldn't be a hard thing to I'm accomplish. Really... But there's so much money in this industry and that's how you end up mm. with just like actually like right. evil insanity. Like, And I'm really pernicious. worried about, uh, I'm really worried about that nutrition conference. I, I fear that they're going to cave to the drug industry again. There's a new nutrition study that's going viral right now specifically about, you know, these fake guidelines about how like cereal and Pop-Tarts are healthier for you than whole vegetables. Again, based on junk science Mm-hmm. funded by the food Often funded industry. By the industry. And so if that science, which has been widely accepted by some people outside of like the online sphere, if that gets accepted by the government and gets included on like dietaryguidelines.gov, which they release every five years, look, that determines school health guideline. I mean, there's all do- downstream effects that this ends up having uh, on a population-wide basis. So that's why we care about it. Mm. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? I can hardly believe the story that I'm about to tell you. So the TLDR is this. New text messages reveal how the former governor of Mississippi plotted to steal millions from the poor in order to build a fancy volleyball stadium for Brett Favre's daughter. That is not an exaggeration. That is literally what is alleged to have happened. And it is backed up now by newly revealed text messages and court filings. And To make matters worse, the current governor is trying to cover up the truth. What I am about to tell you is so outrageous, corrupt, and disgusting that I can scarcely wrap my head around it. It is the most perfect example of socialism for the rich, rugged individualism for the poor that I have ever seen. So, in the nation's poorest state, the welfare fund was plundered to give goodies to a rich NFL superstar, political elites, and their cronies. Buckle your seatbelts, folks. First, though, we gotta start way back. In the Clinton administration, Bill Clinton decided to do what no Republican could have accomplished and to end welfare as we know it. He eliminated the previous welfare program in favor of something called TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Now, under the, unlike the New Deal welfare program, TANF was what's called a block grant. States get a certain amount of funding and with some legal limitations can do with it whatever they want. And in southern states like Mississippi, frequently, they did not actually want to give the money to the poor families who really needed it. Mississippi as a state is the most cruel to its struggling residents. In one year, according to a Jackson Free Press investigation, of the 12,000 Mississippi residents who applied for TANF, a mere 165 were actually awarded any benefits. Many residents who technically qualify for assistance have given up trying to actually obtain benefits because the process is so dehumanizing and the odds of success are so small. Essentially in Mississippi, a state with record child poverty, welfare does not exist. At least not for the poor, but someone was getting all that money. And a multi-year investigation has revealed the way that government officials and their cronies fed like pigs at the trough 
off of that money that was intended to go to help the poor. A single politically connected charter school operator, Nancy New, she is at the center of this fraud. Now, New is a major GOP donor. She's given thousands to the current governor of the state of Mississippi, that is Tate Reeves. Reeves actually filmed a campaign spot at one of her charter schools. She was also close friends with the wife of the former governor, Phil Bryant. Bryant was governor of the state while welfare funds were being pilfered by the millions to benefit Nancy New, among others. So over the length of the scheme, Nancy New and her son Zach netted more than $136 million in state funds. State auditors say that 77 million of those funds were actually misspent for illegal purposes often to personally benefit themselves and their allies. They were two of the six individuals who have been indicted as part of the scheme and are personally accused of pocketing at least $4 million in state funds to fatten their own bank accounts. The vast majority of this cash came directly from welfare funds, again, intended for the, na- for the state's poor residents. But Nancy New and her son are now cooperating with authorities as part of a plea deal, and that is where Brett Favre comes into the picture. So Favre's daughter apparently plays volleyball at the University of Southern Mississippi. That's the same school where he played football. And Daddy apparently wanted to buy his baby a fancy new stadium. Rather than ponying up the bucks himself, something that given his extraordinary wealth, he could surely do, he decided to collaborate with Nancy New to try to secure the millions necessary from the state and his personal friend, Governor Bryant. As with their other schemes, the News sought millions for Favre from the federal welfare funds that they had long treated as their personal slush fund. It wasn't just the stadium, though. Favre was personally paid $1.1 million to deliver speeches that he never actually delivered. He also benefited from millions in investments, the News made to a medical technology company in which Favre was the lead outside investor. Governor Bryant helped out with that company, too. During his time in office, he helped the Favre-connected company to clear regulatory hurdles and to find new investors. Once Bryant left office, guess what? He's given a fat package of stock in that company as gratitude for his help. How nice. Now, I should pause here to say Governor Bryant and Brett Favre both deny wrongdoing. Favre says he had no idea the money was coming from welfare funds. He has paid back the no-show speech money, though not the interest on the money, which he does also owe. Governor Bryant says he was not involved in the illegal company investments that the news are now facing charges of bribery, racketeering, and embezzlement in connection with. He also says he was not closely involved in the volleyball stadium scheme. However, Newly revealed text messages say otherwise. In a new court filing reported on by Mississippi Today, text messages between New, Favre, and Bryant show a deep level of coordination on the $5 million stadium project. Here is the lead of that story. They say, quote, text messages entered Monday into the state's ongoing civil lawsuit over the welfare scandal reveal that former Governor Phil Bryant pushed to make NFL legend Brett Favre's volleyball idea a reality. The texts show that the then-governor even guided Favre on how to write a funding proposal so that it could be accepted by the Mississippi Department of Human Services. Quote, just left Brett Favre, Bryant texted nonprofit founder Nancy New in July of 2019. Can we help him with his project? We should meet soon to see how I can make sure we keep your projects on course. Additional texts show Bryant coaching Favre and New on how their fraudulent volleyball proposal might pass muster to receive welfare funds from the 
the federal block grant, giving direction about the specific type of details they would need for it to be approved, as the federal government strictly prohibits welfare funds from being used for brick-and-mortar projects, like, for example, a volleyball stadium. In other texts, Favre is also seemingly concerned about the media finding out that he is getting paid out of these welfare funds. In one text, he writes to New, quote, If you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? Well, it took a while, but the media did find out. And part of the reason it took so long is because of an apparent cover-up by the current governor of Mississippi, that would be Tate Reeves. There are signs that the current administration is attempting to protect the former governor, and Favre. An attorney who was originally representing the state's welfare department in a civil suit to reclaim the stolen dollars was abruptly fired by current Governor Tate Reeves after that attorney subpoenaed the former governor's communications, including text messages related to the volleyball project. That attorney believes that his firing was politically motivated, and lo and behold, that civil investigation has appeared to slow since he was abruptly dismissed. Reeves has never been able to muster a direct answer about the real reason that he fired the attorney. What's more, even though the $5 million stadium expenditure was the single largest fraudulent expenditure, it has, for some reason, been omitted from the civil lawsuit seeking to reclaim some of the stolen dollars. Now, Reeves says his office used an objective process to determine which expenditures they would seek to claw back, but he has given no specifics about why Favre's volleyball stadium, greenlit by the former governor per these text messages, did not make the cut. Elites protecting their little club. Now, I might remind you that this is the same state and some of the same political players who have not been able to find sufficient funds to pay for residents of Jackson, the capital city, to have drinkable water. So, millions for a volleyball stadium, salaries, investments in well-connected companies, and no-show speech contracts for a rich NFL star. And this is what is coming out of the faucets of their residents. It is sickening beyond words. These people who have the nerve to rail against entitlements and welfare queens, all of that. They are the most disgusting grifters of all. Reverse Robin Hoods, robbing from the poor to pay the rich. And it just so happens that they are the rich. This story went so deep. It is my uh, belief that the only reason... And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, Sagar, what are you looking at? Well, I've been spending a lot of time over the last few weeks thinking about college amid the student loan debt cancellation episode. Again, I'm happy people out there who got their 10K canceled are better off, but I'm really very troubled that the corrupt college industry has not been dealt a blow that it rightfully deserves. On Monday, I highlighted the recent cases of insane woke bureaucrats at colleges doing their best to rip our society apart under false pretenses. Today, I want to go a level deeper to the outright corruption that pervades the multi-billion dollar industry. Average tuition right now in the United States is $44,000 a year for a private university, $27,000 for an out-of-state student, $11,000 for in-state, meaning that at best, a four-year college degree at an in-state college will cost a total of $44,000. Tuition inflation is nearly 1,400% over the last 40 years. I've already exposed how government-backed student loans with no caveats contributed to this. So how do the colleges themselves justify it? Overwhelmingly, while pouring money into student services and more, they have banked on the most simple thing they offer, prestige and certification. This is especially true at the Ivy League level. During the coronavirus pandemic, they still charge $65,000 a year to students to take classes on Zoom. 
When asked why they didn't drop tuition, the answer was simple. A quote-unquote college experience that they touted as so important was immaterial. What they were really charging for was the degree you get and their name that you can use for the rest of your life. The simple truth is, is that if you have a Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, or any other Ivy League name on your resume, you're going to do a hell of a lot better in life than the average person. These collective institutions have a combined endowment larger than many small African nations and will do absolutely anything to protect their status, which brings us to the latest corruption, the U.S. News and World Report rankings. If you spent any time in supposedly elite circles, especially amongst tiger parents, you will know this as an almost religious icon. It is the dream of high-achieving parents across this country to get their kids into a top 25 or a top 10 school. The top 25 is determined mostly by the U.S. News and World Report college rankings. That ranking means everything to the parent, thus it means everything to the universities who know that the parents that they need to bilk hold it in high esteem along with the kids. The U.S. News and World Report list has been called into question several times in the years over its existence, but the latest scandal involving the Ivy League reveals how corrupt the entire process is. Columbia University, a mainstay of the Ivy League and for years claiming with a number two or three spot on the U.S. News and World Report list as one of the best colleges in the United States, recently dropped to a shocking 18th place. The saga began in March when a math professor who works at Columbia called into question his own employer's statistics that it had submitted to U.S. News and World Report, saying he found discrepancies in the sources of data that Columbia submitted. It is worth looking exactly into the data the professor published, showing exaggerations on Columbia's part in several areas. First is class size. Columbia claimed 82% of its undergrad classes have under 20 students, and only 8.9% have 50 or more. Using open source data at the university, the professor found, actually, it's more like 60 to 67% of the classes under 20, and that in fact, the rate of class size over 50 was overstated and worse, actually growing year over year. He also skewed the notion that the faculty at Columbia were portrayed as far more educated and far more full-time than they actually are in practice. But the true bullet to the head was funds used for instruction. Columbia's number two spot was in large part due to its funds used for instruction, claiming by the university that the professor showed the university said it was spending $3.1 billion, which works out to almost hundred grand per student. The professor found that Columbia was, in fact, using money it spends on patient care expenses Hmm. in its inflated figures that when you look at the financial statements Columbia gives to the government, it's completely different by the tune of over a billion dollars. The reason the professor did this was not just to skewer his institution, but to show why the entire ranking system is absurd, how universities game the system by doing exactly what Columbia did, inflating and skewing stats on what is counted to boost their ranking. As he notes in his conclusion, students are poorly served by rankings. To be sure, they need information when applying to colleges. Rankings provide the wrong information. As many critics have observed, every student has distinctive needs. What universities offer is far too complex to be projected in a single parameter. He adds, the ranking is a failure because the supposed facts on which it is based cannot be trusted. 80% of U.S. news ranking of a university is based on information reported by the university itself. This information is detailed and subtle. The vetting conducted by U.S. News is cursory enough to allow many inaccuracies to slip through. That is the point. Columbia just had a guy who was smart enough to point out how full of it that they were. This is more like a Lance Armstrong situation. Every single other competitor is just as dirty, if not more so, meaning the list itself is meaningless, corrupt, and not useful. 
The brand is so strong, though, and so few people will see this monologue or investigation, in all likelihood, they will just continue with business as usual. In fact, despite the corruption of the list being exposed, the day the new one came out, schools on it blasted it out triumphantly. Of course, it will belie more tuition costs, more bloated spending, more loans, more, more highly paid fake administrators. The college industry remains one of the most corrupt to exist in the United States. Last year alone, the government estimates we spent more than half a trillion dollars on post-secondary institutions. It is immense and corrupt wealth transfer that capitalizes on the dreams of the young and their parents who want them to get ahead. And the only way out is awareness. The more that we expose it, the more people will see and influence will decline. Until then, the corrupt rat race continues. That investigation is crazy. It's 21 pages. It's written as a And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, everybody. It is my pleasure to introduce you. Well, you already know who they are. They but to have <laughs> us, uh, yeah. have joining us now, <laughs> our great friends and new colleagues, Ryan Grimm and Emily Chashinsky, the co-hosts of Counterpoints, Counterpoints launching tomorrow. Yeah. Welcome, guys. It's fun to be here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is your set now, too. So we have a few modifications for you. But that's right. Yeah, more or less right here. Well, that's true. And people will see the modifications tomorrow. So all the more reason to tune yeah. in. Big reveal. Oh, oh, big reveal. On point already. Modification <laughs> reveal. I didn't, right. even have to, I didn't even have to plug that one. Like Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. We've been uh, hurriedly making new graphics. I love this particular graphic. This is going to be the widescreen. This is what we're going to have. Uh, in general, Emily, Ryan, uh, I sent you guys your new monologue templates. I think they look amazing. We've got a nice little bottom graphic. Everything's debuting. Yeah, tomorrow. Ryan's really got the smolder going on he here does. in that yeah. shot. I think that might be the best photo I've ever photograph seen with Ryan, for for real. Personally. It's it's Annie Leibovitz. <laughs> <laughs> Any Leibovitz or Ryan. <laughs> so tell us how you guys feel. We did a video like this uh, whenever we launched here on the KKF set. I'll never forget it. Actually, got a lot of views. So tell us how you guys feel to be here. Uh, what you're most excited about? How exactly you want to change things up? Keep things the same? Like, what are you thinking? Well, Ryan likes to talk about his feelings. So I. Okay. This is. Right. How do you feel, Ryan? So for for better or for worse, and some in some ways for better, some ways for worse. Back at at Rising, the production staff and very grateful for it, mm -hmm. did a ton of like prep work yeah. for us. So sometimes we could just roll in mm -hmm. and just <laughs> just do the show. Like right, right away, but otherwise just kind of, all right, what do we got next? What do we got next? What yep. do we got next? Mm -hmm. uh, and what I'm looking forward to is crafting the show ourselves right? yeah. so that we're going to be picking. And also, you know, there's so much content that Rising puts out that sometimes you're kind of reaching. Yes. That was actually one of our big... Um, you know, big reasons we wanted to make a similar move was that same thing because you just, you know, the model over there is just as much content as you possibly can. And I mean, we helped to create that model, yes. frankly, <laughs> because in the early days, we're like, we just got to get this thing going. You got to feed the algorithm. But at a certain point, yeah, you're doing a segment and you're like, I don't care about this topic. <laughs> I don't think it's important for people to know about this topic. Like, I'm just, you know, it's not a good feeling to put things out in the world that you don't actually think are important. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Emily, what did you guys think about in terms of the sort of like overall ethos of the show, your approach to it, the structure of it? What was sort of the thought that went into it? Well, and that's another thing I like about this model is that it's not just we get to sort of put our fingerprints on the what, what we're covering, but also yeah. how we cover it. Mm -hmm. So I like that we're going to be able to take a topic. For instance, like I think we're going to talk about Ken Starr tomorrow. Mm -hmm. In the news, he passed away this week. And we don't have to do, you know, an eight-minute segment. We can actually, like, really say 
what does this tell us about our politics? Yes. What does the arc of this man tell us about our politics? Mm-hmm. And spend a little bit more time going into different things um, and in ways that we want to go into them, even if they aren't perfect sort of news cycle uh, fits, right. mm-hmm. we can spend the time to give more context. Something I love about this format is, you know, a huge portion of the listenership is audio. And right. they're just going to listen to the entire thing. They don't have, they don't even necessarily care like or know what the headline is or whatever. And so they may just stumble into that Ken Starr segment and be like, wow, that's really interesting. I'd never learned about Ken Starr before, which is a fascinating figure in his own right. I'm mm-hmm. kind of jealous that you guys get to cover that. So what are some other things that you got, like in terms of programming? So it's going to be every Friday. Obviously, I'm assuming you'll just hit if there's some major, major news. But what you guys have been doing over at Rising has been kind of the same thing, like taking a step back, looking at bigger uh, stories, like give some people a preview. You don't have to give everything, your whole rundown away, (laughs) but what are you guys thinking? And I think the format also allows you to go a little bit longer on the topics that really, really need it. Or if you're on a roll, Right. Like yeah. We, yeah. Sometimes people like would be I'm, like, if I'm winning you? and they're trying to shut it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, are Ukraine, Ukraine invasion day? That was a 37 minute segment. And that's still that's one of right. the highest rated segments that this show has ever done. Mm-hmm. So right. just, just right. to show you, like if, if it's big news, people will watch people the hell out of it. Right. Right. And sometimes people would say like, what do you mean you have to yeah. run? Like yeah. it's a, it's, it's right. not cable. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, actually you do. You have to run. They wrap. don't understand the scheduling. Right. And exactly. The right. And all that. You, we, well, exactly. And so we have it set up And here. just the, yeah, right. the turn and burn of, we know we've got 10 more segments we've got to do right. today. So exactly. we got to move yeah. on from this yeah. one because otherwise we're going to literally be here all day and the show will never get out. Right. So I think that flexibility is really important. I'm really excited to see you guys sort of put your, spin on what the show looks like, what it feels like, what the vibe is. Um, and, you know, the list of topics that you're, you floated, look, looking at the potential stock ban and things like that mm-hmm. are actually things that we didn't get around to covering this mm-hmm. week, too. I know, because yeah. Sometimes we now have the opposite problem of, um, like, there's more news in the week <laughs> than we're able to mm-hmm. get into the three days that we do the show. So it'll be great to have you guys in there on Friday. You know, there's a lot of news that's breaking Thursdays and Fridays now in the right. news cycle. So it'll be really useful. Yeah, and, and, I was, and I was joking about, like, winning an argument. But what I, what I like about the show is that it's actually not an argument mm-hmm. show. Like, yes. one of the reasons we called it kind of counterpoints is, like, here's a point. Yes. Here's a counterpoint. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, and now— now we can now we can move on to the to the next thing. We're not trying to actually win. And a lot of the times when I'm asking uh, Emily a question, sometimes it's because I want to further the conversation. I know she has a good point to make, and I'm trying to like tee that up. Mm. Uh, about half the time, I, I genuinely don't know the answer, and I'm like curious. Like it's a real question. Yeah. Like an authentic actual question. <laughs> yeah. Not like it a comes debate through. bro yeah. People get vibe it. of right. like, I'm going to own you. Right. With- not trying to tr- move yeah. you into a corner and then, oh, you've said this thing. Now they'll, now by your logic. Logic chokehold. Yeah. 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 It's like, yeah. actually, we have two people here who are both thoughtful and have different opinions. And like, let's work through that in real time. I mean, that's, I think, why we felt really comfortable bringing you guys onto the channel, which yeah. is something that we are kind of like a little nervous about, reluctant Initially, about. Well, not even about you. Just No, not about you guys expansion. in general, but yeah. the idea of it. Um, I mean, number one, you guys have been an important part of helping to create Rising and make it what it was, helping to create breaking points and making it what it was. Like, mm-hmm. you guys were original friends of the show on, you know, the <laughs> election panels yes. and all that yeah. stuff over at Rising. So we obviously have a great level of comfort with you, but we also felt like you really— get the that kind of core ethos of like 
you know, I think at our best, my ideal goal for the show is to be able to show that we can disagree mm -hmm. and it's okay and it doesn't have to like break apart the union. And, yeah. <laughs> and I do, I do feel like, yeah, if I can't have yeah. like a, a actual, like a real hard disagreement with Sagar and be able to like work through that, then what hope is there for the country at large? So yeah. that's kind of, you know, always been my best hope for this show and what I think you guys have really demonstrated a great ability to do in good faith as well over um, at Rising. And so we're excited to have you here. We're excited too. And people are smart. Like if you sh like if you show people the same contrast that you want to get to, as Ryan's talking about, like I actually want to know what's different here yes. and what's the same. Yeah. Like that's what I feel like all of us need. Like me as a viewer, it's the thing that I love about Breaking Points. Like viewers don't need to be handheld. Like CNN tries to handhold people mm -hmm. from point A to point B so you and exactly not let what in you think. any other differing view. Exactly. They're gatekeepers. Yeah. But like we just have a conversation and try to get to like what the actual contrast is. And then we can all think about what the road forward looks like. It really comes through people. It's the thing that people love the most about the show. And and every time I meet them, you know, sometimes some of the things people say are like really heavy, where they're like, You really improved my relationship with my dad, mm -hmm. Crystal. I was like, Jesus, dude. Like, <laughs> That's great. Don't put that on me. Yeah, yeah. It's like we found a way to be able to talk about these things where we don't just like hate no. each other. He's like, I'm more like right. Crystal. He's like, but you made me understand like what my dad means whenever he said, I was like, wow, that's, <laughs> and, that's a heavy responsibility. And, and people are, people are starting to get it. And actually the, like, the corporation that bought Hill, yes, the Hill, yeah. Hill TV Next Star, called right. Next Star, they actually have the right diagnosis. They uh -huh. think that cable news is completely broken and people don't trust it anymore. Their solution is wrong. Like the, the solution, <laughs> Cuomo, you mean? they're coming <laughs> yeah. forward. It's like, we're going to, we're yeah. going to be the ones who are down the middle and, <laughs> right. and fair. Mm. That doesn't, that doesn't work. That yeah. doesn't scan to either side. Right. right. So their diagnosis is right. But I think the answer is give people options, like yes. give, give people different viewpoints and then let them decide for themselves. I, I talk to a ton of people who watch CNN, Fox, and MSNBC mm -hmm. because they want to get, because they don't trust any of them, but they think if they get enough of the different viewpoints, then they can decide for themselves. And here we're just kind of yeah. doing that That's all in one place. Op, it's good for people. Right. Yeah, it's good for people <laughs> Actually, to not two mostly. be in ideological bubbles. Like it's good. It's like sometimes I wish Sagar would just agree with me on everything. <laughs> but <laughs> but we'll get them there. I know ultimately it's, there's no fun in that. Like, it, there is no fun in that. And yeah. I, I mean, I get a lot out of our exchange. I get out a lot a lot out of preparing for our exchanges because mm -hmm. I know I'm not gonna just have somebody there who's gonna amen me on every everything and is actually going to challenge me. So Same. I have to bring like the best argument that I possibly can. And it's caused me to like rethink some of the ways that I approach my, you know, my views, my values and mm -hmm. the way that I want to, um, you know, live in this world and approach politics. So I think it's a beneficial thing. Obviously, we believe in it. We have seen you guys, you know, living a lot of the same values and are just excited to see what you are putting together. Are honored that you have um, decided to yeah, join. Thank us. you excited. for always choosing us. Yeah, really. We're, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're honored by it. Yeah. I think I, we mean it when it's, yeah. we say that it's an honor for us because what you guys have built here, I think, is so important. I, I've covered it at the Federalist, like how important <laughs> this is. So it's truly an honor, um, and we're very excited. It's not us. Awesome. It truly, is all about them. Uh, as we have yeah. said, mm -hmm. we've got a ninety, uh, a ten percent. I keep saying ninety. Ten percent discount <laughs> for the <laughs> annual. Right. You get ninety percent. Ten percent is off. Let's throw the graphic up there one more time. Counterpoints for the annual membership. It helps fund this, other expansions, status quo, the reporting, to be able to send reporters to wherever anything is happening. Yeah. By the way, you guys will benefit from that. You'll have live footage. Oh, awesome. If you ever want to dispatch Jordan or anywhere, uh, or one of his cameramen, we can help, stuff. and we, yeah. can, we can send a reporter out onto the ground and have exclusive footage like we did 
at Jackson. This stuff costs a lot of money, guys. You know, the yeah. studio, the technical, the graphics, the reporting, uh, all the other contributors. Max had that awesome railway segment. Yeah. These things are things that you alone are funding. Can never rely on the YouTube and Spotify gods to just show up for us <laughs> one day. So thank you all so much. We've got that link in the description. And we they will see you all yes, tomorrow. tomorrow. And uh, yeah. It will be distributed. So their show will come out just like ours does. There's no extra price for whatever. You're a premium member. You're going to get it just like you get um, breaking points. So... You know, it'll be in your inbox. I think at show. noon, right? We're, noon is the starting point. So for premiums, it will come out at noon. For everybody else, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yeah, so California people, don't worry. You'll still watch it in the morning. Yes. I don't want to hear about it. Indeed. <laughs> okay. So good luck tomorrow, yeah. guys. We're very excited. Excellent. All right. Atlanta. And then Crystal and I are going to be Atlanta. So yes. that'll be fun. Uh, and if we feel like it, maybe we'll put some clips out of it. Stay tuned. We'll see how it goes. We'll see you guys later. <laughs>